Thank you for joining us for Bookable Space. In this episode, we welcome Soraya Khan. Soraya will be reading to us from and talking about her book, We Take Our Cities With Us, which is a memoir. Soraya, thanks so much for joining us for Bookable Space. Yvonne, thank you so much for having me as a guest. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to have you. So we're just going to jump right in. Sure. We Take Our Cities With Us is your memoir. The essays are vivid, engaging, and often candid, exploring grief, belonging, identity, family, legacy, borders, and more. Can you talk to us about your decision to write your memoir? Well, I did not make an active decision to write a memoir about grief, which is really how I think of my book. I think about it as a way to, for me, in retrospect, as a way to process my grief and to hold on to my mother for a little bit longer. After my mother passed away, I could not read or write fiction. And so, although I tried, so what I did instead was just spend a a year reading almost exclusively grief memoirs. And while the memoirs resonated with me in terms of that deep grief one feels after the loss of a loved one, I didn't find them speaking to me in the ways that I needed about identity or family history, what a loss might mean for those things. So that's kind of how I began my process. And around that time, actually right before then, I had finished writing my last novel, City of Spies. And I knew then that I wanted to take a break from fiction, but I didn't yet know really the form that that might take. But in our current moment, we're so, I should say, in the current moment, identity has become such an important topic. I was keen to look at my the multiplicity of what I thought of as multiplicity in my identity, but not only that, my parents as well. So these two strands sort of came together, and that's how I launched on this project. Oh, wonderful. And speaking of the project, could we have a reading, please? Yes. I'm just going to read the first reading I'm just going to do is just the first pages of the memoir. My mother was white and my father was brown. My mother Dutch, my father Pakistani. If she'd had a choice, she would have been brown. She tried sitting near swimming pools during short summers when we lived in Vienna and long ones when we lived in Islamabad. But her attempts came to a full stop with basal cell carcinoma when sunscreen replaced sun as her best friend. My father's brown was constant, except that when he grew older and gray in a certain light and on a certain part of him, his color lightened. I am in between. I pretend I didn't know I was brown until we moved from Austria to Pakistan and I saw it all around and made it mine. But my truth of color and country is complicated. Color is a fact for my American-born children. We didn't wake up one morning and decide our children were ready for the news. You're brown. Almost as soon as they could talk, they put their little arms next to mine and decided they were darker. They were always right because when summer came and my color deepened, so did theirs, and our skin tone never matched. Next to their fathers, their arms and legs were not a match, but close enough. 
That's okay, our son said about my outsider status and patted my arm because they must have thought I needed comforting. Before long, they'd ask, where are we from? I'd say, you are where we are from, Pakistan, and from where you were born, here. Naeem, my husband, would remember my mother and add, also from Holland, where Nani is from, which would surprise me because I had forgotten. There is no flag for their combination, and anyway, the white in that equation, the one-fourth of them that is my mother, was ignored even then. Nani is the brownest person we know, I heard them say once, as if they'd always known that color was a state of mind, not a pigment. My mother's allegiance to brown was resolute. She was forever on the side of the underdog, as if she'd lived it coming of age in Amsterdam during World War II as a daughter, granddaughter, and great-granddaughter of white Catholics. She'd half joke, I'm absolutely positive I have Arab blood in me, and then react to our skepticism with, now don't you forget about the Arabs in Spain or the war between the Dutch and the Spanish. She threw around history the way all of us had been thrown around the world. I knew then that history lived alongside us, but until she was gone, I didn't understand that her history lived there as well. She was right. You cannot leave history behind. But when you're the daughter of my mother, Tara, you cannot leave her behind either. It's true. That day was warm and beautiful in New York. Summer bled into fall. Trees were gloriously green. The sky more Colorado than New York. The freshly washed school buses, a striking yellow. The scene never lasts long in Ithaca, where trees shed leaves before we'd like and snow arrives with Halloween. I walked to the afternoon bus stop with my neighbor, as I did most days since moving to the street. She'd seen her older child through elementary school while I was still new to the routine. Shahid had started kindergarten the previous Thursday without a backward glance as his little body climbed the bus steps behind Kamal, who was beginning fourth grade. The doors closed, the brakes released, and my relief was immediate. Time had moved back into my life more precious than when parenting stole it, and I was free. We'd heard the news, of course. At first, the blaring radio in a repairman's white van on the side of the street was only a disruption. Sitting at my desk, facing the window, I'd slammed closed. I was desperate not to squander a moment of work time. I turned up the volume on Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan's devotional song CD in my computer and checked email through our dial-out modem. As soon as I disconnected, the telephone rang and a friend gave me the news. By the time the phone call stopped, the towers had fallen and Muslims were suspects. What a powerful opening. Throughout, I found myself, so the essays, they're really moving and intimate. There's, they're woven together with vivid scenes, touching and memorable. There's also some humor in there. Um, I wasn't sure if you know this right in the beginning when the kid Jim throws the rock and doesn't, I guess, realize that where he's throwing it, he's running to and it's going to hit him. I don't know if I was meant to laugh then, but I was thinking. But <laughs> could you tell us a bit about your process and how did you like decide what to include and what to leave out, what to give to the reader and what to keep for yourself? 
Well, it was a long process. Um, the way in which I, the way I think about it is stitching together the memoir. When I had originally written the memoir, I had divided up the chapters according to the cities in my life. And then when I went back to look at the draft, I realized that the cities lived side by side, right? Sometimes they were in the same paragraph and definitely on the same page. And so then I thought, that didn't really work. Mm -hmm. And I also noticed that my mother made such an appearance, not on every page, but her death really informed the project. And so when I started to think about her, my grief and her illness, really, and her death as the arc of the story, it helped me figure out how to put the story together. You know, it helped me figure out how to make it gel. But one of the interesting parts of writing this in terms of my process as a writer was really to discover that creating a narrative in memoir is not that different than creating a fictional narrative. One still needs to do the same thing. It's about story, right? It's not so much about ourselves in the end. If we don't have a story, we don't have we don't have narrative. So that was really illuminating for me. And that, that helped me also. Oh, I think that's a great reminder because I think so many times people either get stuck with, um, they want to write about themselves. They don't know what to tell and they're not sure it's a story and, or who it's going to resonate with. And then there's those of us who are going, my goodness, you know, there's this connection and this resonates and we'd love to hear it. And we'd, and some people are thinking, no, I don't, you know, I don't have a story to tell or write to tell it. And then, so they don't, whereas other people are going, this is a story. And you're like, mm, that's the thing that happened to you. <laughs> so I think you're right. Like the, at the end of it, it's, it's a story, even though this is like the story of you. Yes, but it, it's hard to come to that realization. I think it took me quite some time. And actually, it was only when I returned to it with what I thought of as my novelist's eye mm. that I realized that I wasn't thinking about this work as story. I was thinking about it as myself. And when I looked at it as a novelist, I thought, no, I think I need to start it here. And I think I need to only include these parts. And so that helped that helped me shape it. Oh, wonderful. And could we hear more from the book, please? Sure. I'm going to read a few more pages from a little farther on in the book. And I, I don't think that you need any setup. At least I hope you don't. A few years later, I experienced my first real death, and it belonged to a whole country. I was 17 when Pakistan's Prime Minister, Sulfikar Ali Bhutto, was hanged early one morning. A noose was tied around his neck, and he said, finish it and a trap door fell underneath him, and his hangman declared him dead. He was buried without his wife or children, settled into the ground before prayers could be offered, and final, or is it first, goodbyes were said. I remember my father, his face gray like my hair is now, and my mother tall and white as ever, in a zippered bathrobe, a strand of fine hair caught in her mouth. Each went about the early morning, charting distinct rhythms for their grief. I was awoken by the racket of my mother putting away the previous night's dishes. Then, from my window, I watched my father, lost in his thoughts in oversized pajamas, walk the garden and pace the driveway before he saw our chokidar, and the two reached for each other 
as if they were old friends. I heard a stifled sob, at least one, which might have been my father's, even though the only time I'd seen him cry was when his brother died. We still lived in Vienna and the death of a prime minister, at least that one wouldn't have mattered to me. I turned away from the window. As a rule, death happened to other people. But on the morning of April 4th, 1979, my world tilted and my stomach lurched. Death had a taste, iron like blood and jasmine like flowers, and it was in my mouth when I joined my parents for breakfast. It would taste the same again 37 years later when I leaned over my mother's body in the morgue. The radio blasted more static than words in the kitchen, but my mother turned up the volume. It had been seven years since my father had moved us to Pakistan, and his country changed everything about me. It had even changed the color of my skin. I hadn't noticed, but overnight, and in all the ways that mattered to me, it had become decidedly brown. My mother poured my father's second cup of tea and added toast to the basket near him. Her hand grazed his as she sat down, and she kept it there, their knuckles touching, for a few minutes more. Eat my mother instructed me. I'm not going to school today, I said. The International School of Islamabad was a misnomer, as it was mostly American, and my classmates were the children of CIA agents, or U.S. Embassy personnel, or USAID workers, or Aramco employees. You will be on the bus, end of story, my father said. Why? You will not give anyone the satisfaction of knowing you don't want to be there. What? After what the Americans have done, my father said, leaving what they'd done hanging over breakfast like it would hang over the country, you will get on the bus and take your sister. I knew better than to hesitate, so I finished my eggs and I put my lunch in my bag, and then my mother said her piece. I will not live here under that criminal, she said, because no one in our family needed the name of the criminal, the general who'd overthrown the prime minister with U.S. assent and effectively sentenced him to death. Living under the Germans was one thing. Living under a murderer is another, she said. The Germans weren't murderers, my mother said, getting up and pushing his chair back with his legs, his patience all gone. You know precisely what I mean, my mother muttered as he left. Wow. Sarayam, What's something that you learned about yourself or your family, your definition of home, belonging? What's something that you learned while editing and writing your memoir? Well, I mean, in the most basic sense, what I learned from writing the memoir was my what my parents' stories, right? So I got a glimpse into their interior sensibilities, which I had never really spent that much time, I think, in retrospect, thinking about. And that happened because, I mean, it it would have happened anyway, but I think it was sped along and precipitated because after my mother passed away, I inherited these hundreds of letters that my parents had written each other during their time of courtship, mostly during their time of courtship. And in those letters, they were having conversations with each other when they were so young, right? My mother was in her early 20s. My father was a little older. But the kinds of things that they were talking about 
it was a surprise to me that they were thinking about at that age. I should not have been surprised. But, you know, we don't think about our parents as separate units without us until we're confronted with that sort of evidence. So it helped me understand that they had lives and loves and worries and all sorts of things that had nothing to do with me. And that was rather eye-opening. And also to discover that in those letters, they were concerned about how they were going to bridge their worlds, right? Because they came from such different worlds. And so they talked about this back and forth in the letters. And then that those frozen conversations I touched base with, I touched base with because of course, now so many near, so many years later, I'm thinking about those things and wondering about those vis-a-vis my children. So it was, I don't know, you know, it was, it was really enlightening to me. I'm, I'm not sure that's what you had in mind when you asked that question, but that's, that's the first thing that came to me. You asked me something about, I forget the second part of that question it had more to do with being a writer. Um, I think it was maybe the while the editing of it. It was just as if there was something that you learned about yourself or even your definition of home. But I think your answer was a beautiful answer. Okay, then maybe I'll just leave it there. I mean, I, I did learn things about editing and being a writer. And I mean, it, those things weren't necessarily new. They just echoed the difficult lessons we learn when we're writing novels, right? That we cannot include everything that might move us that we that we might want to we can just include what's necessary to the story and I had that very much in mind with this book because there's it just feels so it, this book felt particularly intimate to me and I didn't want to go overboard with what I was sharing even though I feel like I'm that the narrator is vulnerable and you know revealing things I wanted to make sure that what the process of doing that wasn't gratuitous and I was giving only what was necessary. Oh, wow. I hope that anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Could we have our final reading, please? Sure. So this part that I'm going to read now comes fairly far along in the book and uh, my mother's not well already at this uh, juncture. On a February afternoon in 2016, when darkness falls in Vienna before the day is done, my mother and I rode the tram to a favorite restaurant on the edge of downtown. The short walk from the station was ragged until I slipped my arm into hers and surrendered to an unfamiliar labored pace. At the restaurant, her gaunt face was made radiant by candlelight that filled in her thinned eyebrows. The silver table settings too elaborate for our meal, added to a celebration of sorts, which meals with her were in those final months. Our conversation veered from topic to topic before arriving at my writing. She was pleased that I'd written a new essay, but at the mention of the title, Five Queens Road, she cried out as if she'd been struck. Not again, she said, invoking the novel, my novel of the same name. You must find something else to write about, something that doesn't have to do with family. Like what? I teased. She slapped the table and her wedding ring rang out. She hadn't removed it when my father died and wouldn't until a few weeks before her death when she wiggled it off her swollen finger for Aisha, my sister, to keep. 
The waiter set down our sparkling apple juice, and the votive candle on the starched tablecloth flickered. My mother ignored me when I explained that the essay really didn't feature her. You know I don't like the way I am in your novel, she said, as if she divided her time between Vienna and my most recent book, City of Spies. Her complaint was old, as was her conflation of my fiction with our lives. But in those last months, besides longing for her to live, I wanted to be a kinder, more understanding daughter. So I was still and listened. I don't curse like that, she was saying about an earlier novel. You should know better. And what do you think? When I was pregnant with your brother, I lay around all day in the garden of Five Queens Road as if your father didn't need help doing anything? In the candlelight, she was not yet 82, but thinner than ever, amplified by perfect posture, which age and illness could not defeat. That day's haircut softened her face, and no one but us would have known that chemo had ruined her hair. She tapped her index finger against the glass, and as I often did, I caught myself trying to memorize her, as if a lifetime of being her daughter hadn't already committed the breadth of her fingers, so much like mine, to my mind. Our Wiener schnitzels arrived, and she pierced a lemon wedge with her fork, and I don't remember why, but the conversation shifted. Back in her apartment, Lahore greeted us in copper trays leaning side by side in the entryway and a carpet set at an angle on the parquet, all before we reached the living room. We didn't need the reminders, for the place was on our minds. I'd never seen anything like it, my mother said when I kissed her goodnight. I sat on her bed and fiddled with her radio until it was set on a volume that suited her and would not wake me in the other bedroom. I pulled her bedsheet to her chin as she'd grown to like and waited. Five Queens Road was a circus, she said, her eyes closed, trying to put a chapter to rest. Don't tell Munir, she whispered, as if my father were there. I left Vienna for Islamabad the next day, and she wished she could come with me. Vienna was what Islamabad was not, yet like a woman still torn in two directions, 17 years after she'd left. She continued to long for her dogs, the house, those hills. Back home, she'd say, which had kept us on our toes at first. But slowly we realized that in the speaking of it, Islamabad was still home. But in the living of it, Vienna was. Give the hills my love, she said wistfully when we hugged goodbye. And when I saw her again in a few weeks, she asked, so how were they? As if she were also missed. Oh, how beautiful. (laughs) Thank you, Yvonne. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. So where can we buy We Take Our Cities with us? So the book is available in all bookstores. In Especially, I would direct you to independent bookstores. My home bookstore is Buffalo Street Books, but it's available online at bookshop.org and Amazon, and various other places, as well as from my publisher, I should say, which is Ohio State University. It's available from them on their website, and there will be a discount code for international orders closer to the time of publication. Ooh, that's wonderful. And as someone who would be making an international order, who doesn't love a discount? (laughs) Well, it helps with shipping anyway, right? (laughs) 
there is that. So thank you so much. Thank you for being such a wonderful guest, for sharing your time and reading to us. It was a joy and a pleasure to have you. Yvonne, thank you so much for having uh, me. And thank you so much for doing this podcast. I look forward to what other people have to say.